Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist Marketeers 4DC. I'm joined now by Steve Marinka, who is the head of Maitland's corporate practice. Steve has been leading a research project into the corporate values of the FTSE 100 companies. Steve, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about this study, because I think it's probably safe to say that most people, or at least your average person on the street, is completely unaware um, that companies even have values. And it may equally be the case that people who work for companies are unaware of the corporate values that those uh, organisations express. And I think that's what prompted me to look into this whole arena. Um, it started really with a very idle question, a sort of um, uh, a, a rhetorical question, which is, if you were to conduct an analysis of, let's say, the FTSE 100 and create a league table of the core values that they uh, claim to have either on their websites or in their annual reports, which ones would come towards the top of the league table, which ones would um, come towards the bottom and which might be missing altogether. And it was really no more than just an idle fancy. Uh, but um, as I got deeper into the research, I became more and more intrigued by the, the value statements that seem to come up time and time again. Mm -hmm. uh, those that uh, you know, uh, were less frequently expressed, but in some cases I felt were more interesting for being less frequently expressed. And then out of that came uh, a broad discussion, which I think taps, taps into what you've been uh, alluding to, which is how well understood are these values internally? Oh. Do they have a role to play externally? Um, what kind of processes do businesses go through in order to identify their values? And most intriguingly of all, um, when did companies feel the need to express core values? You know, have they been doing it uh, ever since there have been businesses or is it a more recent phenomenon? And if it is more recent, then what's prompted it? So all of these uh, areas of investigation are contained within the report. I don't claim for one moment that this report says everything that there is to say about corporate values. This is the Maitland Values Project. It's the beginning of a process. It's not the end. Uh, we start with an analysis of the FTSE 100, uh, but there'll be a lot more uh, to come. And in particular, as we try to understand uh, how do companies arrive at their core values and what are the challenges involved in uh, getting the people within the organization to understand them, to live them, to behave in the way that a business says to its external stakeholders it, it wishes to behave. Mm. You mentioned in the report that the, the move towards expressing corporate values began uh, after a management book, a popular management book, was published, Built to Last, by Jim Collins and Jerry Porras. And, and in fact, I think at one point you even say that, that corporate values, um, what began as a fad, has now become much more established. Um, why do you think that's the case? Why have corporate values become popular? Why, why, are companies, why do companies feel the need to set down what they believe in and, and how they feel they should behave? 
Well, I think that that moment in 1994, when Built to Last was published, is a pivotal moment in the history of corporate values. Were there businesses prior to 1994 uh, who identified a series of core values and expressed them internally and externally? The answer to that, of course, is yes. But I do think the publication of that book is a kind of inflection point in the history of corporate values. Mm. Um, it was a very influential management tone. Uh, and I think over a period of time, its, um, its practices, its teachings, its conclusions have started to uh, enter the kind of the lexicon of management speak, so much so that no one gives many of the concepts that were identified in that book a second thought. They're just things that you do. Um, perhaps most recently, uh, businesses have started to adopt uh, the idea of a purpose. Uh, and often, you no know, values don't sit in isolation. They're part of a kind of corporate culture soup that also includes vision and mission and, as I say, more recently, the idea of corporate purpose. But why do we see today 83 out of the FTSE 100 companies uh, expressing a set of corporate values? Why has it become... Um, it were second nature, almost you, know, you wouldn't even question whether or why a business has corporate values these days. I think it's hard to answer that question. Uh, it may have something to do with the, um, the trend towards what some people call radical transparency, um, and perhaps in particular in the wake of the Enrons and the Lehman Brothers and all the corporate failures that we're very familiar with, a need to almost a psychological need, a psychoanalytical need to convey internally and externally the, um, the nature of this business, the, you know, uh, the kind of DNA of an organization, what drives its corporate culture. And I suspect that's why you find words like integrity and respect and transparency and honesty and trust right at the top of the league table. Uh, and then further down the league table you go, you get into more operational values like efficiency and speed and, and those sorts of words. Uh, but at the top, it, it is very much sort of behaviour-led uh -huh. uh, values. Uh, so I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I've really answered your question. You know, as I said a moment ago, this is a project. You know, this is the beginning uh -huh. of an investigation rather than the end. Uh, but I suspect if, if there's one moment in time um, that really uh, set the agenda for the need for corporate values. It probably is actually the uh, the, the corporate failures that failures of the late late noughties, mm -hmm. coupled with management tones like built to last. You, you you put those two factors together, and I think that's why uh, we see corporate values so commonly expressed. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that you mentioned some of the corporate failures because. It seems like we're living in an era where there's more corporate misbehavior than ever. And I think probably part of that is just because there's a lot more scrutiny on companies. Um, but in that kind of environment where you have companies like Volkswagen with its most recent emission scandal, um, you have Barclays and HSBC, the issues that financial services companies have faced. What do you think um, about the fact that, for example, integrity is the value most valued? by these companies is, is, I mean, if it's being used that often um, and in that context, does it, does it just become meaningless? I think so, yes. Um, and 
I would advise any business that has words like integrity and respect and transparency as a core value to think very long and hard about um, the value of those values. Uh, after all, could you imagine uh, claiming the reverse of integrity and yeah. respect uh, and transparency? Mm. I think that's probably quite a good asset test. If you can't imagine the reverse being a value that anyone would, would care to claim, mm. it probably is a good clue uh, that those values um, don't really add an awful lot, don't really give you a glimpse mm. into the unique corporate culture. Um, I, I kind of liken it to walking into a party and saying, I've never once kicked a dog and I've never once robbed from the elderly and kind of expecting a round of applause. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I think there's a lot of, some businesses, to my mind, have very clearly been through a really rigorous process of inward reflection and have identified values that truly capture the unique culture of that organization. Mm -hmm. a, a, a great example, I think, is Pearson. Right. Uh, uh, and the, one of their core values, and by the way, they, they kind of stumbled across their values by accident rather than as a result of a, um, a really in-depth analysis. But one of their core values is decency. Now, decency you know, superficially may sound rather similar to integrity, but it's not. Integrity really just means compliance. Mm. Decency is something else. It means compliance, but it also means social approval. And you can understand why a business that's in, um, in learning, in digital learning, you can understand why decency is a much better expression of what that business is all about than integrity. So I think some businesses have got it right. Um, mm -hmm. oh, no, there's another question, which is how well understood are those values? You know, are they consistently lived? Um, mm. Do stakeholders recognize them when they're uh, presented with them? Uh, but as a start point, you know, ha having, a, having values that uh, are a, a really sort of considered reflection of the culture of the organization, that that's where you need to start. Um, the other values that Pearson has are um, bravery and imagination. And actually, decency, bravery, and imagination are amongst those values that no other FTSE 100 claims. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm angry with them because I added a fourth recently, which <laughs> is accountability, uh, which is one of those kind of you know, vanilla values. But, uh, right. but decency, bravery, and imagination, I, I think, are great values for a business like Pearson. Mm -hmm. And it feels like they are authentic. And I think that mm -hmm. probably is the most important uh, consideration in developing a series of core values. Is It's got to be something which everyone within your organization and outside who you deal with you on a regular basis got to feel authentic. Interesting. So... Pearson has, has as, you, as you mentioned, three values that you think are authentic. Um, now, one of the things you can't really do in this report is measure um, whether a company is actually uh, delivering on the values that it claims. Um, right. But what's your sense here? When, when companies say that they are something, do you feel that it's, it's actually being lived by the people within the company and in its external relations? Um, or do you think that more often than not, it's just a more of an aspirate? Let's let's say charitably, an aspirational goal. I think I think it's perfectly legitimate to have aspirational 
value goals, but be very clear that they are aspirational goals. Mm. Uh, they are, they are behaviours that you would like to see rewarded um, and promoted within the organisation. Um, I, I think actually you can probably split uh, a value statement into, uh, you know, in, in, into sections. Um, those that are aspirations, those that are minimal um, standards of social behaviour like integrity, which frankly I would just jettison. Um, and, then, and then the third one is you know, genuine glimpses into the unique corporate culture. Mm. Um, and I'm sure that in most cases, you know, particularly for large companies with multiple locations, and thousands of employees all over the world, if you put the stated core values of the organization in front of the entire workforce, there will be many you know, within the, the organization who would, who would sort of snort with derision. <laughs> and I, I guess that's almost the, that's the yardstick. You'll, you'll never get to a point when nobody within your organization snorts with derision. Uh, but if it, you know, that, that would be the kind of benchmark is to, is to get that uh, number to the lowest possible um, level. Mm. Uh, you asked a question earlier about how businesses arrive at the uh, values in the first place. And mm. There's no one answer to that question. But um, we, we talked about Jim Collins and Built to Last a little bit earlier. Um, and his view uh, is that what you need to do is to almost elect in a kind of a pontificate way, a, a small group of individuals within the organization who by common consent um, sort of embody what that organization is all about. And there may be no more than five to seven uh, of those individuals. And he calls them the Mars group, the idea being that you've got a rocket ship and it's going to Mars and you want to establish your business on Mars. Uh, which individuals would you choose who, from a cultural perspective, would, would best embody uh, the, the culture and the values of your organization. And then you asked, you asked those individuals to identify the values. There are others, other businesses, which um, open up the process to the entire organization using technology, which was, was, was less available to Jim Collins in 1994. Mm. Um, and, and the danger with that, superficially, that's a very attractive way of going about building your core values. The danger is that you end up with a long, bland list, um, and there, there is one business in the FTSE 100, which you know has a long narrative value statement. If you mm -hmm. were to identify all of the values you know, within that statement, you get to 27. Which company uh, is that? It's, it's Direct Line. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. So, no, they, they, to be fair to them, but they, they group them under eight core behaviors and principles. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you look at the narrative underneath each of those, you, you end up with 27. Uh, and if people are you know, being expected to absorb all 27 and live all 27, then I think that's that's quite a tall order. Mm -hmm. um, elsewhere in the report, we look at um, what would be an ideal number of core values. And th th there's no answer to that question. But what I can tell you is that the modal average is four. Uh, and that kind of feels right. I don't have any empirical evidence. But you, you, you kind of feel that three or four core values um, is enough to capture what's unique about your organization, but mm -hmm. not too many to take you down a path of 
a long bland list that will not differentiate you from anybody. Sure. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned the, the, the kind of blandness test, but I, I see on your report that there are two financial services companies who claim that they are fun. Yes. Um, I'd be interested to know who they are, but, but more broadly, it's not necessarily a value that you would, um, you know, you'd associate with the financial services sector. No, indeed. Um, and I, I, I would answer the question, which are the two that claim fun, but I, unfortunately, I don't have the information in front of me, but I, oh. I can let you know. Uh, but no, they put it on their website, so it's not a secret. Mm. But um, I suppose, you know, you have to recognize that the overwhelming majority of the of the, the usefulness and the application of values is internal rather than external. Right, and okay. Can a financial services company not aspire to be fun um, in the same way that a consumer goods business might aspire to create a fun, motivating uh, working environment? Uh, I, I don't see that as being a contradiction, but I can quite understand uh, if this is a, know, a fund manager or uh, you know, a business that you rely on for your for your pension, you probably don't want the individuals within that organisation to be having too much fun. Mm. Um, it's interesting though because you mentioned that actually these values are, are should should be measured in terms of or at least measured more in terms of their internal impact. So those of us outside the organisation looking at these as just um, you know spin or rhetoric or, or just being fairly sceptical. Um, is that perhaps, you know, it's, it's less important than the fact that internally these, these values may actually count for, for, for more? Um, well, I think I asked um, uh, the Pearson team mm -hmm. about the external application of values. And I said to them, do you expect your most important stakeholders to be able to name check your values and they said i think quite rightly absolutely not absolutely not but what i do expect is this when i'm face to face with a stakeholder and i say did you know that our core values are decency bravery imagination and accountability i would expect them to say do you know what that absolutely nails my experience of your organization that that feels absolutely right and I think that's the asset test. Uh, no one should expect your external audiences to be able to name check your values. It's hard enough getting internal audiences to be able to do that. Um, but if uh -huh. having been presented with those values, they say, yeah, that feels absolutely authentic and it reflects my experiences of dealing with your organization, then that's a big tick. Mm. And finally, what about these 17 companies that have no values? Well, it's not to say that they don't have values. I was very, very clear that these are, there are 17 businesses who, as far as I can tell, neither express values on their corporate website nor within their, their annual report. It's not to say that they don't have core values. Um, they may well just choose to communicate those solely internally. Mm. Uh, so I think that, that's the first point to make. The second point to make is, and we've touched this on, on more than one occasion uh, during this interview, is that there are many businesses, there are 83 who do have values, but there seems to be quite good evidence that a lot of them are just paying lip service and feel that they ought to have values, but don't do a huge amount to communicate them internally and externally. 
Mm. Um, there was a very interesting analysis that was published this morning comparing the 83 who do um, uh, have values versus the 17 who don't and concluding that those who don't actually outperform in terms of the stock market outperform those who do. And it's, uh. it's, it's, a, fun, it's a fun analysis, but, it, but it's fundamentally flawed because it uh, assumes that the 83 who do have values live those values, communicate those values, that the values are authentic and right. kind of glimpse. And of course, I would suspect that in most cases, the answer is that they don't. What would be far more instructive, and this may be the next stage of the Maitland Values project, be far more instructive to take a cohort of businesses who, uh, and the big question, how do you measure this, have a really well articulated, properly considered set of values that are really understood and lived within their organization. And then you can compare them with almost any other uh, equivalent sized group within the FTSE 100 and compare and contrast their performance. That would be far more instructive and, and maybe that's the next uh, phase of the Maitland Values project. Interesting. I, I wonder what it would be like to compare the values of public relations agencies. I imagine you'd find a considerable amount of overlap. Um, so maybe that could be another one for you. Yeah, but I suspect you'd probably find many, many haven't bothered. <laughs> yeah, perhaps not. Steve, thanks so much um, for joining us on the podcast today. It's a great pleasure. I'm joined on today's Echo Chamber by Tyler Durham, who's a partner at Ketchum and leads the agency's change unit. Uh, Tyler, welcome. Thank you, Arun. Great to be here. Um, so we're going to talk through some research that your team has come out with about change, uh, which I suppose is... is is apposite given your title but in particular the the what you've described as change fatigue um and i wondered if you can talk us through a little bit this idea of change fatigue and and why you're seeing it at companies yeah certainly would love to and we you know the, the title of our study is maximizing the business impact of change and uh, the subhead is a new way forward. And what we have begun to experience with our clients is that there needs to be new mindsets, new operating systems, um, new, new cultural behaviors with regard to how we approach change in organizations, given the complexity um, and the pace of change in today's organizations. And we have been experiencing it within our clients, but we also wanted to go more broadly and understand both in North America and in Europe, the experience of senior level practitioners uh, on the importance of change. Mm -hmm. So that was what the study focused on. Mm -hmm. And if you start with what I think is oftentimes a, a pretty humbling supposition that change will never be slower than it is today. Mm -hmm. and, and think about, we already feel the impact of that. And are we as leaders, um, leaders of teams, and then also leaders of organizations, um, doing what we can to help our organizations both deal with this change, but also see it as an opportunity and put in place the mechanisms to allow us to, to really capitalize on that. Okay. And why is that so important now? You talk about this idea of change fatigue and indeed of continuous change. It seems to me like companies are just all the time that they're, they're grappling with um, having to change in one way or another. Is, that, is this become an issue that, that many companies are just having to deal with at the moment? 
It, it, it is, and it's, it's, it's actually not that new, but mm-hmm. one of the things that we found is that the approaches to dealing with change haven't evolved at the pace of change that businesses are experiencing. Mm-hmm. Um, so some of the old models and the old thinking, and particularly the idea that change was an event and that there would be a series of initiatives and there would be a start point and an end point, and at mm-hmm. that end point, we'd be able to enjoy a, a, a period of rest or in, be able to execute our strategy without interruption. You know, mm-hmm. Those days are gone. And so to psychologically, emotionally, and physically prepare organizations for what today's environment looks like, it requires this new approach. And one of the things that popped out in the study was the paradox of change. And, and I'll, I'll explain that for a second, where when we asked over 500 senior leaders in, in mid to large size organizations, is leading change effectively a critical business driver for you? 95% of them said yes. That in itself is not a surprising finding. Um, the next part is where nearly 75% of them said that their organizations are experiencing change fatigue. Mm-hmm. So therein you see the, the tension of it's a critical business driver for us, but our organization and our people are already fatigued by it, so we need a new way through it. Mm-hmm. People find change hard, though, I think. I mean, I think we can, we can safely say that. Um, do you think we're, we're ever going to get to a point where um, there isn't change fatigue or that you know, some people somehow are, are energized by the prospect of change rather than fatigued? I think it's going to take a little while. I think that we, you know, interestingly, I think that the, the world has brought to us um, a new definition of the opportunity of change, whether we like it or not. We have five generations in the workforce for the first time ever in corporate history, and many of those generations grew up on the idea of change and reconstituting teams and moving to adaptive type um, organizations. And so they bring with them a, a, an entirely new paradigm. Mm. The, the tough part is that our organization systems have been set up for the old way of doing business, mm-hmm. where strategy, communications, um, activation starts at the top and then makes its way down through the organization um, instead of thinking about a much more dynamic system. So mm-hmm. we're, we really do think that the idea of a new operating system and whether that applies to a chief communication officer and her or his way in which they mobilize the organization to be able to both engage with internal and external constituents, but also take ideas and information and move them more rapidly um, to make strong decisions faster than ever um, is required. Mm. It's interesting in your research that um, people in the C-suite, so the heads of, of companies, um, are much less fatigued by change compared to people lower down um, who, who are more fatigued. Uh, what does that tell you? Um, I, I think it's um, as they sit often in a location that's a little bit more remote from the front lines, whatever front lines happens to be for that organization, they have the time and space sometimes to think through um, strategy and the consequences of a, a competitive landscape and opportunities in a, in a safer environment sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, 
it begins to be a difficult thing and they want a more nimble organization to be able to activate that strategy and align it inside the organization. Um, in, in very simple terms, there's a metaphor, particularly in communications, and we often work inside of organizations, uh, and I think this is an interesting way to approach it. We, we continue to hear the word, let's cascade that through the organization. Mm -hmm. And I think this applies to the fatigue that you see at senior executive levels. To me, that, that image is of senior executives sitting above a very large waterfall in mm -hmm. more peaceful waters. They can see broadly. The sky is clear. And then all of a sudden, there's a, an, a triggering event, and we need to push a lot of information into the organization. And if you're an employee, it feels like sitting at the bottom of that waterfall. So you're trying to do your day-to-day -day job, build new products, deliver great services, mm -hmm. um, invent great things. And then all of a sudden you get this new information and you're overwhelmed for a bit. And then you're left wondering, well, what am I supposed to do differently or not? Mm. And and it's it's episodic. And I, I, I'm trying to eliminate the word cascade. And I'd much rather see us use a fountain metaphor mm -hmm. where leaders are aligned at the top. Um, it's transparent. The messages go out at the same time. They spend time at different levels of the organization where the information makes meaning for that person, that team, that level of the organization, area of the world. Mm. But the most vital piece of this is that the water recirculates. So the feedback is constantly informing the system. Mm -hmm. And so that, to me, is a communication response to the idea of change fatigue that we're seeing in organizations. Okay. Um, one of the things you pointed to as being a barrier uh, to change, and indeed one of the drivers, I imagine, of change fatigue is that people lack decision-making power. Um, how difficult is it for companies to, to truly democratize decision-making um, when it comes to trying to do things differently? Uh, you know, it's funny. I, I, um, yeah, it's an interesting word choice you use because I, I don't know that decision-making actually needs to be democratized, but it mm -hmm. does need to be faster and ideas need to move more quickly to allow good decisions and then the right grants of authority for those decisions. Um, the, the people closest to the opportunities or the problems often have the best ideas around how to solve that or to capitalize on it. But it takes a long time in large organizations for those ideas to get to the right decision-making authority um, where they are grants of authority and they need to go through several reviews. So mm. I think we, we are in the dawning of a new age with regard to organizations needing to think about how do I more rapidly both give the permission to the people at the right place to give that authority. And you've, you've seen you know the classic examples pop up, whether it's Zappos delivering spectacular customer service on the phone or the Ritz-Carlton um, inside of their properties, but now you think about larger scale organizations, how, how do they take that and, mm -hmm. and begin to bring that to scale? And th that is, I believe, will be one of the fundamental characteristics of success of modern organizations. Interesting. And how difficult do you think it is for companies, I mean, take a big company like HP, for example, which has changed enormously um, over the last few years and has been through leadership changes and so on. Uh, and at the same time, they're being uh, examined relentlessly in the media. And in fact, sometimes these changes are coming out or are leaking out before people within the business find out. Um, how difficult is that uh, f for people within the business to deal with? 
it's um it, it's i think you know it's a, it is the classic example and particularly in today's environment where um, everyone has access to information at real time and you know organizations are increasingly becoming more transparent so i think that one of the the keys is um one is letting loose of control a bit and recognizing that we are humans and, and adults and we understand that tough decisions get made and they're not always clean with regard to uh, the information that we have or um, mm -hmm. the, 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 the completeness of the plan. What may be more fundamentally important and actually the, the reason why we've called this liquid change is that um, focusing on our core values, our, our shared beliefs and our our purpose for that organization should be the guide in the times where we're making decisions and help people understand this is who we are as an organization, this is what we stand for, and we'll make decisions based on these values. And if you can get people to understand that, believe it, and trust it, uh -huh. then as, as leaders are making decisions, that should be um, a, a little bit of constant as we're making uh -huh. those changes. And it's a, it's a, the metaphor we use is, and we've, we've reduced a lot of change in organizational behavior theory into saying that organizations behave in three classic states. Um, and we, we talk about the chemical and, and physical states of water. Uh, on one continuum, they look like an iceberg or a piece of ice. Um, and uh -huh. we call that a solid state organization. And they're imprisoned by their processes and their culture of wanting to wring every ounce of risk out of something. And they, they continue to see change as a very linear process. They risk um, moving to extinction if they don't change their state. On the other side of the continuum would be a gaseous state organization. Those are organizations who, again, the employees aren't really sure what the core values are because it starts in one state and ends up in a vapor, mm. or they're constantly chasing what we call the shiny penny. Um, so uh, traditionally, those organizations also experience a lot of change fatigue. Mm -hmm. And the, the nirvana state is like a liquid state. Mm. Or, or a liquid like, lunch, indeed. Yes, <laughs> or, exactly. Um, or a, uh, a graceful river is, is a really good metaphor for it. it. It maintains its same core shape. And as it moves through both opportunities and obstacles that are presented in its way, it has the same direction, um, mm -hmm. same path. And it, it moves gracefully um, most of the time to its destination. And, mm -hmm. and that's what organizations need to put in place today, the ability that, A, it's continuous. Mm -hmm. um, it, it requires the fundamental belief in four key attributes, which is what the study also focused on. And, and we were able to work with our respondents to understand, well, what are those attributes that are really important in today's environment? Mm. It's interesting because when we often talk about companies that are using, um, that are able to change quickly and have used that as a, as a um a, a positive distinguishing factor or indeed to, to build their business at the expense of rivals it's often newer companies or new economy companies um, how hard do you think it is for, for big established traditional companies some something like an HP um, to really reach that state where they are comfortable with change and it becomes something that works for them rather than working against them yeah you're right. I mean, the, the, just the, the, the incumbent responsibility of a long-tenured organization with deep-seated beliefs and cultural norms takes longer to retool than a new organization who has the opportunity to 
to start from a clean slate. Mm -hmm. But I think we're beginning to see organizations behave in that way um, and, and think dramatically different about how they position themselves for that type of change and becoming more transparent throughout their entire organization supply chain and even sets of partners. Um, whether you take a, a Patagonia, for example, and if you go and click on a, pro a product that you'd like to buy, most of the time you can actually see exactly where that product was made and oftentimes where the source materials come from. So this idea of becoming much more transparent and fluid about who you are and, and I, I think even a, another interesting example is I, I think the McDonald's campaign of um, uh, your questions, our food, and their ability to be able to have a real-time dialogue, um, it shows how a larger organization is, is working hard to get to a more liquid state. Mm, interesting. And then last thing I wanted to raise with you, um, marketing and, and communications agencies of all stripes are also dealing with a lot of change um, in terms of the models they're using and the type of people they're employing and how well do you think these industries do when it comes to communicating change internally yeah i, th I you know we, we, oftentimes that we're, we're you know cobbler's shoes don't have the best I mean, cobbler's kids don't have the best shoes but mm -hmm. i do think that we're you know as part of a needing to stay competitive and help our clients do great work um, and win in the marketplaces in which they choose to compete. There is a bit of um, a we're, we're able to see it on the horizon. Um, may not spend as much time being able to um, nurture it inside of our organizations, but I think we've got a keen sense of yeah it, it's it's important for agencies to begin to put this in place and help our clients deal with that. And I think. Um, you know, Ketchum has a really unique view, or maybe not unique, but we have a strong point of view, where we believe that a good brand is a promise and a great brand is a promise kept. Mm. And the idea of, of minding the gap between what you're promising in the marketplace and what you're delivering in the marketplace and keeping the alignment really tight, um, you know, that's something that we both externally work with our clients on, but internally work hard on ourselves. Okay, well, Tyler, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. Thanks, Arun. It's a pleasure. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.